Amen. Uh, thank you to our choir for that beautiful uh, piece that so well captures just the spirit of Advent. And thank you for continuing to lead us with beauty and creativity in this season. Uh, my name is Abby Odio. It's so good to be with you wherever you are today. I am the pastor of teaching and formation here at Bethany Green Lake. And we are in this season of Advent, which is the time of year where we anticipate the birth of Jesus. And of course, as much as we love to celebrate that truth year after year, it's harder this year because of all the things we know so well, the continued uncertainty, the continued isolation, the continued sort of a climate of fear around us. And given that reality, it's true that our celebration may not be as fa-la-la-la-la and sort of cheery as it's been in the years past. But also given that reality, it's true that never has Christmas or this message of light and hope and peace been more needed or in some ways more sort of clarified for us as it has in these weeks. In 2020, we all know words like peace aren't just words that we see on a roll of wrapping paper every year, but they're realities that we are deeply sort of longing for, deeply hoping for. And so to that end, I'm really grateful for this season and the ways in which it will help us to see Jesus with greater and greater clarity. Last week, Kindy uh, focused on the wise men who come looking for this new King Jesus because their study of the night sky indicated that something sort of majestic in scope was happening. These wise men, they follow this strange star formation. And when they arrive in the general area, they do the logical thing, which is to go visit the leader, King Herod, and ask him if he knows anything. Do you know where this king is to be born who is king of the Jews? That brings us to the short set of verses we'll look at today in Matthew, which highlights Herod's response to the wise men. This is Matthew chapter two, verses three through four. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Let's pray as we uh, prepare our hearts to study God's word together. Jesus, uh, that word yearning continues to be something we know all too well. We yearn in this moment for so many things, for hope and for peace and for light. God, we know in sort of this intellectual way that somehow this mysterious birth embodies those things. But God, I pray that in our moments together, that would become more deeply ingrained in our hearts. God, that we would indeed grow in peace and knowledge of who you are, that we might become the people that you have called us to be as lights in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, this week, as I looked into the life of Herod, I did so with sort of this increasing sense of sadness for the man. And this feeling was sort of based on the reality that Herod sits at the center of uh, this unfolding Christmas narrative. He's right in the middle of this sort of universe-altering, hope-giving moment in history. And here's sort of the sad part. He misses it. He misses it. 
He, well, as we'll see in our time, he misses the very thing that his soul needs the most. And I also realize it's easy to sort of read through the story and point the finger at Herod. But as I was reflecting this week, um, sort of on my own life, I, I realized how often I miss, how easy it is to miss the very thing that we need most. How easy it is to miss the most important thing that is right in our midst. About four years ago, my husband, Sam, and I, we were newly married. We were uh, actually headed home from a Super Bowl party. And the reason we were headed home is because I was feeling sick and um, nauseous. And I just couldn't like stand all the little hot dogs and the food. It was just making me really feel terrible. And so on the way home, I'm sort of describing my symptoms to Sam. And he casually throws out his opinion that he thinks I'm pregnant. And I I said, no, there's no, that, that's not it. That can't be it. And of course, um, as time would tell, he turned out to be right. But over the next several months, I tried to sort of wrap my head around this unexpected turn of events. We weren't planning on getting pregnant right then. We weren't planning on having children that soon in our marriage. And um, as I was sort of trying to wrap my head around this, I would begin to feel guilty because you know, I know so many people who long for this to be a reality and it, it can't be a reality for them for whatever reason. I was feeling insecure because, you know, I, I've pictured us having kids, but I think of myself as a mom and I think of all the shortcomings I have and, you know, you have to care for and sustain this little life. And I thought, I just don't know if I'm up for it. And so my solution was to like get a plan, like figure out how to get life back to normal as I saw it as quickly as possible. And about two months before Mark was born, I, I was on the phone with a dear friend and mentor of mine. And uh, I was talking to him, you know, I said, he said, congratulations, I heard about the baby. I said, yeah, 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 that's all good and well. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to focus on getting back to work, um, living out my calling. I had a timeline. I had dates. I had goals. And I'll never forget after laying all of this out without sort of even pausing to take a breath, there was a bit of silence on the other end of the phone when I finished. And my wise friend responded with this sort of simple statement. He said, Abby, don't miss this. Don't miss this. And I knew the moment he said those words, he wasn't talking about missing a job opportunity or a promotion. He was talking about this this little child, this little vulnerable baby, this new life that would challenge and mesmerize and torment and in certain ways altogether reshape how I think about words like calling. In other words, the presence of this little child would prove to be more important and formational if I let it and paid attention than the plans or the goals that I had. As I read the Matthew Christmas story, I found myself wanting to go back and offer Herod that same sort of gift of a reminder that I'd been given. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. Here you are, Herod, at the, the very center of the story. The core theme of Christmas is the reality of a, the God of the universe, the God of the stars entering into the particulars of our story. And here's God passing right through Herod's kingdom and he misses it. 
And again, as I sort of sink my teeth into Herod's life, I found my pity for him really transformed into something more like empathy, transformed into this awareness that the God of creation has indeed come into my little kingdom and is coming every moment into my little kingdom and how often I miss it, how often I balm my soul this time of year, especially this year with consumption, distraction, blame, online shopping, plans for the future, plans or things we're going to do when this is finally over. God's motivation, God's invitation, and God's promise. God's motivation, God's invitation, and God's promise. So let's look together at this this notion of God's motivation and specifically God's motivation for coming in the person of Jesus. See, from the moment Herod hears about Jesus's birth, he immediately becomes defensive. The Magi inquire, where is the one to be born king of the Jews? And this language is particularly troubling for Herod uh, because Herod is the king. And as king in that day, it would make sense that he's sort of constantly vigilant for any power that might threaten his reign. And so sensing a rival king, Herod sets about the work of posturing and maneuvering in order to bend circumstances and opinions in his favor. And as the text reads, all of this is sort of based on this fear that his his power will be confronted, that it'll be challenged. But what Herod misses is this truth that this baby King Jesus is not motivated by displays of power. That's not why he came. Sure, Jesus held all power and authority. We know that it was given to him by God, but an ascension to the top of the political archy is not what motivates Jesus. Rather, the single and clear motivation that scripture offers us for God becoming human and coming near to us is love. It's love. It's there in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. It's there again in Romans 8, when Paul reiterates that nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In some ways, it's the truth that's almost too familiar for those of us in the church, and yet still so easy to miss. Holding this motivation of love in mind, let's look again at Herod's story. It's believed that Jesus was born uh, near the end of King Herod's life. There's some debate around the specific year of his death, but generally scholars agree Herod is in the final years of his life when the wise men arrive. We know from historical sources uh, that when the last days of Herod's life came, and this is fascinating to me, Herod would order the arrest of Jewish elders from a number of villages across Palestine. Then he gives the order that uh, these elders be put in jail in Jericho with the command that immediately following his death, they would be killed so that there would be sadness and lament all over the country when Herod died. Now, thankfully, this order was not carried out, but its very existence gives us um, kind of this glimpse into the heart of Herod. Here's a man who lived his whole life grasping for security, grasping for power, grasping for attention. And yet in his final days, he is haunted by this question, will anyone care? Will anyone weep? (laughs) Was I worthy of love? 
And he, he knows given his track record of brutality and violence, the answer to that question is very likely no. So he does what he's always done. He tries to control the narrative, the image, tries to play with reality and give the appearance of what he desperately longs to be true. Herod's story is admittedly extreme, but not altogether unfamiliar. One writer put it clearly, there is a little Herod in all of us. See, we live with this this reel of questions that I would argue 2020 has surfaced in these profound and and really painful ways. God, do you see us? God, we're, we're still here. Do you care? God, am I worthy of your attention, your love? Peel back the layers enough and this question lies at the heart of our political fighting and belligerence. Lies at the heart of our very real grief related to the pandemic, loss of life, loss of businesses, loss of human contact, loss of routine, loss of holidays spent with people we long to see. There are losses facing us that are sort of beyond our control. And in that moment, like Herod, the core of our human longing is revealed. And with that, this fear that nobody cares. In July of 1962, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King delivered a sermon entitled The Antidote of Fear. And in that sermon, he identifies uh, fear as sort of the major cause of conflict and war. Some of you will remember 1962 was the year of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So uh, that brought the United States to the brink of war with what's now Russia. In that same year, conflict in Vietnam would intensify. It would just be a couple years before the U.S. entered that war. The civil rights movement would make celebrated progress towards justice, but not without angry opposition and violence. See, similar to 2020, 1962 is this year of palpable, palpable fear. And Dr. King assumes the pulpit and makes this bold observation that fear is the major cause of war among us, division. And the only antidote to fear, he says, is love. Quoting from that sermon, Dr. King says this, only love, understanding, and organized goodwill can cast out fear. And then he says this, not armament, but disarmament will cast out fear. And so as Dr. King states, we can take one of two approaches. We can sort of arm up metaphorically. We can blame the other. We can try to manipulate the story. We can pretend like it's all just not happening. We can lash out on social media. This is sort of the approach Herod takes. Or we can address the real issue underlying the fear, which is always about love. (laughs) And what baffles me about this story for Matthew is that in the moment of Herod's greatest need, like this is Herod's 2020, right? This is Herod's 1962. This is the year he will face his weakness and death. And this is the very same year that God comes near. It's the very same year Jesus is born, motivated by love. The very thing Herod needs in his time of weakness. A love that in its nearness sees Herod with clarity, sees his brutality and chooses to love still. I can say with confidence that 2020 has been full of moments that are not my proudest. Um, If you have any doubt about that, feel free to ask my husband, Sam. 
Actually, don't do that. That makes me a little bit nervous. But uh, one friend recently said this year feels a bit like we're in sort of an off-roading vehicle all the time and nobody's wearing seatbelts and we're going over, you know, bumps and terrain. And for some of us, it's been more tumultuous than others, but all of us have felt those bumps. And at the end of a particularly bumpy day in our household, I went to put our three-year-old son, Mark, to bed, and we sort of did our routine. And then at the end of that routine, I always say to him, "Um, you know, buddy, I love you so much, and I'm so happy to be your mom. And most nights, he'll say to me, "Uh, mommy, I love you so much, and I'm so happy you're my mom. And so we did our little routine, and, um, you know, I turned off the light and and went to leave, and I hear his little voice say, mommy, and I think he's going to, you know, do the bedtime evasion thing where it's like, I need water to go to the bathroom for the hundredth time. And, uh, but instead he didn't say any of that. He just said, mom, I love you even when you are really crabby. (laughs) And at first my heart sunk a bit and I thought, oh no, like gigs up. He has seen right through me. Like I've tried to fake it and I have failed. And so I went and told Sam and sort of admitted the shame that I was feeling around what had been a really hard day for me. And in classic Sam fashion, he responded, yeah, maybe you've ruined him for his whole life. Or maybe he's just learning something about love. See, friends, at the heart of the Christmas story is a God who comes near to Herod. And the little Herod in each of us sees us with clarity and loves. It's what we need the most. Herod lived in a violent world where he could hardly imagine a king with such motivations. A king whose very birth, whose very coming near to us communicates this reality. You are loved even when you're fill in the blank. Afraid, scared, insecure, at your wit's end, sarcastic, impatient, weak, walking in the dark, confused, frail, spiteful, hateful, doubtful. You're loved. And for some of us, all of us, I bet this important, the most important thing we can do this strange Christmas season is simply find our way home to that truth. Meditate on it, literally. (laughs) Take a couple moments, sit with that for five minutes. You are loved. God of all creation, light of the world, here, now, near to you, seeing you, loving you. We all have high hopes for 2021, hopes that better circumstances are around the corner. And trust me, I am right there with you. But friends, let me tell you, unless we learn to live in the truth of God's coming near, God's expression of love, unless we learn to live in that, any gain we make in 2021 will be arbitrary. A vaccine or changes in certain policies or, you know, the government's ban finally lifted. Whatever it is that you welcome in 2021, and we all have a list, without our acceptance of God's love, ultimately it will not heal. Friends, let's not miss it. That brings us to the second reality that Herod misses, which is this, uh, the invitation of God. The invitation of God. If the motivation of God is centered on the word love, then the invitation of God is summed in this word growth. Here at Bethany, we talk about this journey of wholeness, which is really a journey to becoming the people who reflect sort of the heart of Jesus to the world, who live moment to moment in God's will. So when I talk about growth, I'm specifically talking about growth of that nature, growth towards wholeness. 
And in the same way that the love of God is known in the nearness of God, so too is our growth towards wholeness always realized in close proximity to God. If we look at the Christmas narrative more broadly, what becomes apparent is that when God comes near, every player involved must give up something must let go of something, must travel a road they otherwise would not have traveled in order to undergo this transformation as part of God's story. Joseph, the father of Jesus, must give up his reputation in the eyes of the community and follow through with his marriage to Mary, even though she's already pregnant. Mary must give up her body and her own reputation as well to bring this baby into the world. Some scholars predict the wise men traveled for multiple years following the star formation. It was likely a very difficult journey. But for each of those folks, between their sort of human limitation and God's ask on their life seems to be this space of vulnerability where growth happens, where they learn to give themselves over and over, not to their wants or their ego or their coping strategies, but to God. If we look at the life of Herod, we see this same invitation is extended to him. The Magi show up and they say, we're here to see the king of the Jews. Can you show us the way? And Herod goes off to meet with his advisors to kind of figure out what this is all about, which is part of the story we'll talk about next week. But I want to highlight that after this meeting, he calls back the wise men to tell them what the prophets have said about Jesus's birth happening in Bethlehem. But in Matthew chapter two, verse seven, we read that Herod calls for the wise men secretly. It's really important, secretly. Now, why would he do that? Here's why. Word and fear have already spread that these wise men have come and they're looking for a king. And by, by calling them back secretly and directing them towards Bethlehem, it would seem Herod is conceding that yes, there is another king in town, but as we know, that's not what Herod's doing. This is all part of God's plan to actually, or part of his plan, part of Herod's plan to actually try and destroy Jesus. See, at the time of Jesus's birth, Herod has reigned as king for 34 years. That's a long time to be in control. It's a long time to have others bow down to you. And to publicly and sort of honestly acknowledge the presence of another king would be a terribly vulnerable move on Herod's part. So he calls the wise men in secret. He refuses to name Jesus as king to the masses. He misses the invitation. It would require far too much from him. It's interesting. There's this sentiment that I'm sure some of us have heard or even I've said it at points. It goes something like this. I'm spiritual, but not religious. I'm spiritual, but not religious. Before coming to Bethany, I was a college pastor at a church in the Bay Area. And it was a very common expression I would hear among sort of the millennial crowd at that time. And let me be clear. I think there's a a really valid critique here of sort of organized religion and the harm that has done on a number of fronts. But what I would also hear in spending time with folks who'd sort of endorse this perspective is this resistance to any sort of God who would come near to me who would enter my life and ask something of me that's sort of beyond the comforts of my ego or my ideology or my coping strategies or my little Abbey kingdom. See, if we, if we think about giving up power in that way, it's a, it's a terrifying prospect. 
It's interesting, during Jesus' ministry, his home base was this little town called Capernaum. It's on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus spent a lot of time in Capernaum, and I had a chance to visit there several years ago. If you sort of walk through the archaeological site, one of the things you immediately notice is that the households are not sort of like individual homes as we think of them, but rather this maze of interconnected structures called insulas that are built around a central courtyard. And as our guide pointed out, the most prominent building in this small town was a synagogue, the place of worship. So here you have a town literally constructed in such a way that there is no escaping the people. There is no escaping God. And, And this is where Jesus chooses to spend his time to get to know people, to get into sort of the nitty gritty of their lives. He doesn't choose stadiums, he chooses synagogues. On that same trip, we visited one of the Colosseums Herod built in Caesarea. And the difference couldn't have been more striking, impressive, grand, beautiful even, but entirely impersonal. See, Herod was a master of speaking to and manipulating the masses, but but history would suggest no one actually knew him. So when Jesus comes near to Herod, he's understandably quite terrified. This God, this God will permeate the defenses Herod has so carefully and grandly built. Makes me think of conversations I'll have with folks on sort of how hard and scary it must be to get up in front of people and uh, preach sermons. And yes, it is frightening and I'm scared every single time. But you know what's even more terrifying? Leading a small group. And you know what's even more terrifying than that? Leading a small group of middle schoolers. Because they are smart and they've got questions And they're not afraid to ask those questions and you are vulnerable and exposed. Let me tell you, 500 people is nothing compared to that. I'll never forget uh, volunteering as a a leader of a middle school group when I was sort of fresh out of seminary, right? I I had all the answers. I knew my stuff. And I I sat down with this group of 11-year-olds and the first question out of their mouths was no joke. What about the dinosaurs? Like, why does the Bible not talk about the dinosaurs? And I had this moment of like, shoot, like I missed the Jurassic Park course in seminary. And so, you know, I'm stringing together this pathetic answer. Keep asking good questions, middle schoolers. We need that. Y'all are brilliant. See, whether we're seminary educated or king of Judea or CEO of Amazon, the truth is we are all vulnerable. Again, this truth has sort of been painfully unmasked in 2020. One of my favorite theologians, Marilyn Robinson, poses an important question. She says, how do we respond to the fact, the fact of our vulnerability? In other words, how do we respond to the fact that we're human? That we have fears and and very real ways of dealing with those fears. That we have shortcomings and ways of masking those shortcomings. The invitation of God coming near is not that we accept God and God's love into our life and the pieces sort of magically fall into place the way that we would have them. That's not it. God is not Santa. Sometimes it would be nice. The real invitation of God is actually placing our very self in relationship with God in close proximity to God and then finding a way to speak the same courageous prayer Mary uttered when she found out she was pregnant with Jesus, let it be with me according to your word. Let it be with me according to your word. 
That, friends, is what growth is about. And there's no need to dress it up because it's hard. Just ask anyone who's lost a job in this past year. Ask anyone who's suffering with mental illness, suffered the utter heartbreak of a miscarriage as a friend of mine did this week, suffering with loss. And that's not to say that God wills or desires these hard circumstances, but as we offer our vulnerable self to God, we find these things become a very real doorway into a deeper sense of knowing and nearness and ultimately faith than we have ever known before. Friends, that's what Advent's about. It's about entering through that doorway. It's about sitting in the dark and believing it's not the end. One exercise might be simply walk, uh, waking each day this week. And as you start your routine, pray to God with utter honesty and vulnerability. Like, here's where I'm at this morning, God. Here is what I'm feeling. Write those things down. Maybe open up a note on your phone. And then as you move into your day, pray that prayer with Mary. Let it be with me according to your word. That's vulnerability. Friends, I trust that if we did that for a week, we would walk in closer step, in closer relationship with God. And we would grow. That brings us to this third and final reality we cannot miss, which is the promise of God. And the word that we're going to talk about here is peace. In the final days of his life, Jesus promises to leave his peace with us, even as he goes. He says, my peace I give to you, my peace I live with, leave with you. And then he contrasts this peace with the alternative offered by the world, essentially saying, the peace I offer is different, it's richer, it's, it's better. And all this we see is sort of interconnected because peace is the reality of a person who continues to turn honestly and vulnerably to a God who is lovingly and ultimately willing their good. Peace is the reality of a person who continues to turn honestly and vulnerably to a God who is lovingly and ultimately willing their good. Our scripture for today tells us Herod hears about Jesus and he's afraid. Some transitions say he's disturbed or he's terrified. That word implies this sort of total lack of peace. And many of us are all too familiar with that word right now. We know what that's about. It's the same word we see in John chapter 12 when Jesus' friend Lazarus dies and Jesus arrives sort of seemingly too late to do anything for a sick friend. And John tells us twice in that story that Jesus is greatly disturbed. He's, he's terrified. He's afraid. It's the same word in Greek we see to describe Herod. See, fear itself is not the problem. No one, not even Jesus, navigated life without feeling disturbed. It's a very human thing to feel. But as many of you know, this story doesn't end with fear. Jesus commands the stone of Lazarus's tomb to be rolled away. And Martha, Lazarus' sister, says in sort of her own grief, essentially like, why are you doing that? You're four days too late, Jesus. Nice try. Nonetheless, they roll away the stone and, and Lazarus walks out of that tomb. He's been brought to life. And Jesus says to Martha, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? 
See, what onlookers witnessed that day was this display of God's love colliding with human vulnerability and ultimately, eventually, beyond the understandable fear, revealing this vision for God's kingdom and goodness that exploded what anyone would have dreamed possible. And as we look at Herod, we see his downfall is not that he feels fear or anxiety or disruption of his spirit, but rather where he chooses to take all that. He tries to achieve peace on his own. He goes chasing after this peace that the world gives that works sometimes for him, but ultimately, ultimately will always fail him. And in doing so, he misses the only trustworthy, life-giving, death-defying place to turn with that. And so he misses peace. Misses that sense that I'm held in this moment by a God whose goodness and glory is being revealed. Even if at present, all I see is vulnerability. There are certain people that have sort of made a habit over a lifetime of turning to God in their fear. Some of you know these kinds of people. Maybe you are this sort of person. But these folks live with a sense of peace that can be puzzling, almost mysterious. My 94-year-old grandma is one of those people, Grandma D, as we call her. Her name is Doris. She's currently uh, in an elder care facility in Auburn. And because of the most recent surge in the virus, her building is on lockdown. So she can't see her friends, can't go down for dinner. They bring all her meals to her room. But what she does have is uh, a room with this big window and it's on the fourth floor. And it faces the Southeast. And with that, she has a perfect view of Mount Rainier. And as a family, we have this text thread that, yes, she is indeed a part of, and she participates in even at 94 every day. And most days, she'll offer us a description of the mountain outside her window. I want to read the text message she sent us this past Thursday. She said this, for those who can't see the mountain, it is out this morning. There's no sun, but it is just as magnificent by itself. The sun is trying to shine behind it beautiful. Aren't we blessed to have the mountain? And I just smile when I give these, get these, like given my grandma's age and the the state of her health and her sort of ongoing isolation, it would make sense that she would be disturbed in her spirit, even terrified. And yet in this mysterious way of all our family members, she is perhaps the most at peace. She hasn't lost sight of God. She's got her vision on that mountain, so to speak. She's assuring those of us who can't see it, it's indeed still there. And she's, she's able to do this because she has learned over a lifetime where to turn. Through the, the Great Depression, through raising five kids on her own, through losing one of those kids tragically and prematurely. She has learned there is only, only ever one source of peace and it's not going anywhere. It's near. Because I know my grandma's faith. I know she's aware of the love of God and in her vulnerability time and time again, she has stepped all the more into that love. And friends, she knows peace. So let me just end and close by offering you that same reminder. The mountain is still there, still there, even in 2020. 
Think of Jesus showing up at Lazarus's tomb and all he could see in that moment was death, but he knew what was beyond that. The glory of God, God's presence, God's love, life after the cross. Friends, this Advent, as we walk our own hard stories, may we have the courage to live in that vulnerability, to enter our fear and despair or failure and to find the mysterious and steadfast peace of God. The light doesn't avoid the darkness. It shines in it. May it be so for us, for you, for me, for our church, for this city. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you are indeed a God who has come close to us. And that simple but profound truth changes everything. That wrapped up in that miraculous story is our hope, is our peace, is our way forward. And God, we admit that even while it is so clear in moments, it is also quite terrifying that it requires something of us. It requires we loosen our grip, that we hold open our hands, that we acknowledge we are poor in spirit, that we say aloud, God, I am afraid and I do not know the way. We receive into our life in this moment, the truth that you do know the way that you came to show us the way, that you came to walk alongside us on the way. Through the dark, God, we are grateful. Help us to live in the truth and peace of that reality this week and in this Advent season. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.